Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sangam namasami Many of you have spent the last two days doing quite a lot of meditation. And it's been wonderful for us too, for our community. I'd like to include the deer who are just outside the temple here. I'm sure there are a few other creatures there too. In reflecting on the creatures, I chose a sutta tonight from the Samyutta Nikaya in the Satipatthana Samyutta. It's number six, the hawk. I'm sure some of you have heard this sutta. Monks, once in the past, a hawk suddenly swooped down and seized a quail. Then, while the quail was being carried off by the hawk, he lamented. We were so unlucky, of so little merit. We strayed out of our own resort into the domain of others. Now when the quail is crying out in this way and saying we, he's referring just to his, himself, but he's representing his lineage or his families of birds. We strayed out of our own resort into the domain of others. If we had stayed in our own resort today, in our own ancestral domain, this hawk would not have stood a chance against me in a fight. And then the hawk says to the quail, what is your own resort, quail? What is your own ancestral domain? And the quail says, the freshly plowed field covered with clods of soil. Now this little quail was very smart and it had already developed a plan to fool the hawk because the hawk was very proud, overly confident of her strength, not boasting of her strength. She released the quail saying, go now quail, but even there you won't escape me. Then monks, the quail went to a freshly plowed field covered with clods of soil having climbed up on a large clod. She stood there and addressed the hawk, come and get me now, hawk. Come and get me now, hawk. <laughs> and then the hawk, confident of her own strength, not boasting of her own strength, folded up both her wings and suddenly swooped down on the quail, 
But when the quail knew that hawk has come close, she slipped inside that clod and the hawk shattered her body right on the spot. So it is, monks, when one strays outside of one's own resort into the domain of others, this is the damage that we can incur. Therefore, monks, do not stray outside your own resort into the domain of others. Mara will gain access to those who stray outside their own resort into the domain of others. Mara will get hold of them. Mara is the archetype of the devil in Buddhist terminology. But Mara was actually a deva who was very deluded and power-hungry and was always trying to catch the Buddha in some way and destroy the Buddha's power. He was very, very envious of the Buddha and wanted to gain control of him and never succeeded. And then the sutta goes on further. And what is not a monk's own resort? but the domain of others. It is the five chords of sensual pleasure. What five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tantalizing. And we all know from experience when we're sitting and we have uh, the thought of something that we would like to see, someone that we would like to meet, then thoughts of that person, thoughts of the form of that person will assail our consciousness. And it will be very difficult for us to stay within our own resort. Our own resort means this body and mind with its five faculties, with mindfulness and clear attention on the object, staying within our own domain, not letting the mind wander out, not letting the mind get distracted, not letting papancha and all kinds of rumination, memories of the past, thoughts about the future, self-conceiving, self-disparaging, other-conceiving, other-disparaging, remembering what people have said to us, what we wish they hadn't said, what we have said to others, what we wish we hadn't said, and so forth. Why is that? If we don't stay within that domain, then the mind becomes caught with pleasant forms, for example, and wants to dwell on those pleasant forms that we have seen, that we wish to see that we once saw and want to see again, and want to see always, our loved ones. Someone had two dogs there in the video that were trying to get attention while you were meditating. They have the pleasant view of us, but when we're meditating, we don't want to be looking at our little friends, the dogs, or the deer, or the bear that comes by. We like seeing her. And what is another domain that we should not wander into? 
sounds cognizable by the ear. We don't listen to beautiful music when we're trying to meditate on the body, within the body, to focus inwardly to the mind and to deepen our understanding of the heart and how it functions, how it opens and how to open it, how to purify the heart. We try not to wander out into sounds or smells that are beautiful. Near the kitchen, we try not to be enticed out of our meditation by those wonderful tantalizing smells. Likewise, we try not to eat every few minutes, get up from the meditation and go have a piece of chocolate or have a bun or something else. We try not to get distracted by being overly comfortable, have pleasant tactile experiences while we're meditating. We try to sit absolutely still and stay within our own domain, this body-mind and not outside of it. So these experiences of the five sense doors and thought as well, these are the five chords of sensual pleasure and then the pleasant wanderings that the mind can go to. This is what is not our own resort, but the domain of others. So the Buddha asks us to move in our own resort, in our own ancestral domain. When he says ancestral here, he speaks about the lineage of those noble ones that for centuries and millennia have walked this path, have developed this path, have ripened in this Dhamma and realized a transcendent domain, which is not actually a domain. It is just transcendent. That which takes us beyond all domains, which frees us from the shackles of sense pleasure and also from the shackles of running away from things that are not pleasant, avoiding experiences which create suffering and distress and despair in the mind. Either way, we become enslaved. But if we stay within our own domain, then Mara will not gain access to us if we stay within our own resort, in our own ancestral domain. Mara will not get a hold on us. Now our own resort more specifically in terms of the Buddha's encouragements for developing the meditation practice are the four foundations, the four establishments of mindfulness. And here they are. What is a monk's resort? What is a disciple's resort? Even if we're whatever, we're householders, monks, nuns, laymen or laywomen, we have these four ancestral resorts, which are our domain. And they are the four establishments. They're not places, but ways of focusing our attention. And the first one is, of course, forms. Dwell, we dwell contemplating the body, the body in the body, ardent, ardent 
It means eagerly, clearly comprehending, with very clear understanding when the mind is distracted or looking aside, tempted to look aside, wandering with looking aside to other forms besides our own. We don't want to look at other people's bodies, but we study our own form. We study the body within the body. Sometimes this is referred to as the breath. The breath is a body within a body. It's a form. And we use the movement of the breathing. It's a very dynamic form, and its dynamism energizes our practice. Because we don't just stare at it, but we observe it in its movement. So we observe the form moving, and this intensifies the effort needed to stay present for that. So dwelling, contemplating the body and the body ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. And sometimes this is translated as removing greed or desire and distractedness or removing greed and grief. But more than grief, it's actually a sorrow, painfulness in the heart in regard to worldly experiences. She dwells contemplating Feelings and feelings, that's the second focus of mindfulness. We're talking about directing the mind to four areas of focus. And just like when you focus a camera, you have to really zoom in. Here we are, we're zoomed in to each other. If we didn't zoom in in this way, we couldn't connect. So when we zoom in to these four focuses of the mind, forms, feelings, the mind itself, and mind objects, or dhammas, then we connect to them. They become the areas that we can investigate. And through mindfulness, clear understanding, ardently studying these four areas of focus, we develop the ability to realize things it's unrealized before because the, it is a purification of the mind and it is a way of delving deeply into the true nature of the body and then from that we start to have the ability the sharpness the clarity of mind to delve into the true nature of mind so then we clearly comprehend and mindfully we remove covetousness or greed and sorrow, any kind of painful feeling around those objects with regard to the world. And we dwell contemplating feelings in feelings, pleasant, painful, or neutral feelings. We contemplate the mind, the nature of the mind, the mind in the mind, the mind in itself, not our concept of the mind, but we develop the, the ability to actually experience the mind directly. And this, if you follow the Anapanasati Sutta, 
then you will see how we develop these four focuses of attention, of attending the mind, gradually by beginning with the body, and then moving, graduating to feelings, and then having the, the skill and the expertise to focus directly on the mind itself and experience the pure mind. And seeing the state of the mind, the processes of the mind. And then we purify, purify, purify until we can experience the radiance of the mind. We understand the mind in itself. We see the states of the mind, we see their impermanent nature. We see the suffering nature. We see that things are constantly changing, transient, beyond our control. And we develop insight into the emptiness of these processes of the body and of the mind. And then we begin to study the fourth focus or establishment of mindfulness through this ardent, clear understanding by knowing directly what arises in the mind, the objects of the mind, like the hindrances. And these must be known. These must be known. Once we know the hindrances very much in detail, directly, with this kind of clarity, ardency, and sharp discernment, with mindfulness and clear understanding of what these arisings are, what these weather conditions of the mind are, we can remove them, we can disperse them. We can enable them to be shattered, just like the hawk, which was trying to kill the little quail, was shattered right then and there because the quail hid in its own domain, in its own domain. So when we do what the little quail did and we keep the mind protected in its own domain, we remove covetousness, we remove that greed or desire for other domains, and we are safe, guarded from the poisons of the five hindrances. Greed, desire, anger, ill will, restlessness, anxiety, sloth and torpor, and doubt. We stay within our own domain, and actually Mara comes looking for us but we are so focused in these four focuses of our mindfulness practice that we're able to be protected from any Mara. And then we're safe. We develop enough strength to cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. So this is a, a little teaching just a story about a hawk and a quail, but what it represents metaphorically is a whole field of practice in which we find ourselves assuaged from all sides, not by a hawk, but by many forms. Mara comes in subtle disguises to talk us into leaving aside the practice, to wandering into what is not wholesome, what does not develop the path, what does not help us understand the depth 
with which we have to penetrate so that we can serve the truth rather than be the prey of Mara. So that we can escape from the dangers of worldly pursuits, of being attached in so many ways, being caught in so many ways, being ensnared. And Mara is relentless. If the quail had not been so clever and strategic, it would not have known to trick the hawk into allowing it to go back to its own domain. And this is what can happen when we're overly proud and we think, oh, well, I am so good at this practice that I can go and take a little break here and do as I wish. And then I will get all the Dhamma energy back as soon as I sit down. But when, once we open the door, the mind will take us down a very winding road. And it's difficult to recoup that energy. So we have to conserve it, preserve it, respect it, honor it, and not be overly confident in our practice. Not think that we're better at it than we are, or worse than we are. Not to judge it, but just to pick it up in the correct way and devote ourselves to it and stay within a safe resort, just as the Buddha pointed out, so that we don't get chewed up in the jaws of the hawk and swallowed for supper. Just like some of our distracted ways or our habits of mind will consume our energy and consume our time and take us away from single-pointed, devoted, continuous alertness, mindfulness, devotion to the, the path that we need to go deeper and deeper. It's a very long journey. We mustn't misjudge the depths and think that we're already deep when we're not or think that we can't get deep when we can. So sadhu to the little quail for her brilliance and sadhu to all of us for our effort. And most important is sila samwara in establishing our ability to let go our attachments and to be as clever as wise in protecting ourselves as the little quail. And remembering that with sila samwara, with sense restraint, we can avoid these pitfalls. If we restrain the senses and practice virtue, this is a kind of generosity to ourselves. We'll speak further about these qualities that give us a very firm footing in our own resort. But we must first recognize what is our true resort and what is not, lest we fall prey to the ever-watchful hawk waiting to catch us off guard. And in doing this 
and persisting, persevering, and hastening towards the goal of the practitioner, of the disciple, on this path of freedom from suffering. We also develop those beautiful mental states of loving kindness for ourselves and all beings, compassion for ourselves and all beings, empathetic joy for ourselves and all beings, and an, an equanimity with conditions when we do get caught or when we don't meet our expectations, to have compassion and cheer ourselves on, cheer each other on, because this is the most difficult thing that a human being can do. That's why so few people take it up. Maybe more people will begin to take it up because COVID is offering greater and greater opportunities for us to stop and be stopped in our tracks unwillingly, but maybe we wake up because we see, what am I doing in my life? What are all these unwholesome things that I'm doing offering me? What protection, what safety? How much compassion do I have in my heart for those who suffer for myself? How much goodwill do I have for my friends and teachers and those who help me and for myself when I help others? How much help do I offer to others? How much joy do I bring to my life and to the life of others? How much joy do I receive from others? How much balance can I sustain in my life? How much strength and stability can I offer to others? Because once we develop a heart that is freer and freer, giving just to ourselves is not enough. We want to serve because we see the downfall of selfishness. And we see the uplift in giving universally to all beings. May we all grow in these wholesome qualities of generosity, virtue, loving kindness, compassion, joy, universal, equanimity through the stability of the mind and enlightened wisdom. Thank you so much for listening.